and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I'm going to be giving a game recap of the Thunder Toronto Raptors game. Just some of my takeaways and the key players that I saw from that, as well as just something that I really liked from what Mark Dagnall was doing. And then I'm also going to be adding a new segment. I don't think this is going to be for every game recap, but whenever I have the opportunity, I'm going to use it. It is the buy or bluff segment. So just something from the game or in recent news that I'm just going to give my opinion on and whether it should have any merit to it or not. But with that being said, let's get right into the episode. Starting out with the Thunder Toronto Raptors game. This one was very interesting heading into it. We had so many guys out. You could almost count it. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you have to use two hands to even count it. I think there were like seven players out, and four of them have been rotational pieces for us. They've been actually starters. You had Shea out. You had Dort, Baisley, Horford, if you want to call that a, a piece, but he's just gone. And then you had Pokachevsky, and even behind those guys, you still had Ty Jerome out. Mike Muscala was not available. So there you go. You already have seven players. So you were kind of just running pretty barren on who you were going to use in the lineup. So a lot of these veterans actually got a shot to play these guys. For the Raptors, they really had everybody they needed in order to be successful. Only player gone for them was Kyle Lowry, and he was a really interesting decision, like a toe infection or something like that. So he got pulled out late, but besides that, they were fully armed. They had their normal lineup trying to face us. And to start out the game, it was really just runs after runs Toronto they shot out like a cannon to begin this thing they got up 14 points in the first quarter alone but they just let it wilt right away because the Thunder they kind of got hot to end the first they went on a 15 to 3 run and by the end of it the score was only 32 to 30 in the Toronto Raptors favor so it was a pretty big swing of emotions there it seemed like they had already put this game to rest I know that at that point I think Gary Trent Jr. had already hit double digits, and our starters were kind of getting cold. However, Mark Dagnall started using some of the guys on our bench, actually, like Justin Jackson and Josh Hall to help out, and they really were one of the leading reasons as to why they made a push to get back down just one possession. But heading into that second quarter, I wrote this down in my notes. It's just perseverance the whole entire way. The Thunder were just getting really just abused down low there was so much physicality used from the raptors every shot had like one to two guys just right in front of their face they were practically smothered whenever they're going up for any sort of jump shot but they prevailed they kept getting decent looks and they kept just hoarding the glass and there was even plays where they had to fight through serious contact they actually had to check the monitor i think midway through the quarter because josh hall in a fast break situation he got the pass had a wide open layup, and then right behind him, Stanley Johnson just bear hugged him, so he got out the play, they had to check, they didn't call it a flagrant, it was actually probably the quickest review I've seen this entire season, but he got away scotch-free, just two free throws, and that was that, but they were really having to fight for everything they got, so the rebounding was how they actually stayed in the game, but they couldn't really back it up on defense, I think offensively, they were great when it came to you know, working through physicality, but they allowed the Raptors to pretty much just get inside whenever they wanted to. They had 14 points in the paint. I think they shot seven of seven right under the basket. And then a little bit further out, they shot 0 of one, but 
all seven of their shots came pretty much in the exact same part of the court. Like, you can check it from the game charts and everything. It was all right under the basket, right where the restricted zone is. That's where all the shots were coming from, and they could not stop it. So Toronto, they were up eight points. They are up 67 to 59 by halftime. And like I said, only reason the Thunder were in this, it was just rebounding. They were up 37 to 19 in that department, and they had a guy in Moses Brown who had seven offensive rebounds already. Seven. He only had eight rebounds by halftime. So seven of those eight coming on offense, that's pretty wild. It's nothing too surprising, you know, coming from a guy like him, but that is that is wild. You never really see that at all. And it's because he was just abusing Aaron Baines, but he really held them together. Shima Kailuk and Justin Jackson, they already had 10 points. And Gary Trent Jr., he was kind of the main guy for them. He already had 20 points by half. But heading into the third quarter, the Thunder, they got on a run. They shaved the game to one just four minutes in. And the reason they got it down to one in the first place, Aaron Baines, he was really mad. I mean, he was just getting destroyed by Moses Brown. So he thought there was an over-the-back call on a rebound and pretty much just gave up on the play, started you know, vocalizing to the ref under the on the sidelines, and he got a tee. He kept talking, didn't give him a second one. But, um, yeah, I mean, they hit the free throw, and that was that. So the Thunder, they sort of had the momentum going into that third quarter. And then it was kind of just crossfire. Like, I don't really think there was a double possession lead, like, at all until uh, around, like, the three-, four-minute mark whenever Chris Boucher for the Raptors, he had a clear path to the rim, slashing inside, and then Teo Maladon jumped in, and Chris Boucher, I mean, he's a tall guy, and Maladon, 6'5", pretty lanky, he's not that big in comparison, so he wanted to get a posterizer on him, goes up for the jam, and Teo snatch-blocked it with both hands, and then kick-started a transition play, I think it resulted on a layup on the other end, so the Thunder got up four with like two minutes left. But then Gary Trent Jr. got back in the equation. The Raptors got on a run, and Gary Trent Jr. got a buzzer beater to end the quarter. So they got up 89-87, to entering quarter number four. And Toronto, fourth quarter for them was terrible. They started 2 of 7. Oklahoma City already had the lead three minutes in. And then Shvi Mikhailuk, he hit a limitless range three. I'm talking probably... 27 to 30 feet here just pulled up hit it and the thunder they got up eight that was their largest lead to that point and then they started getting some kind of 50 50 calls heading their way i think she kind of got lucky there was a goal 10 situation where it looked like the ball had already hit the glass and then he might have hit it but they didn't they didn't call him for it they didn't review it just let the play keep going and they they kept moving so they kept expanding on their lead. I think regardless of those 50-50 plays, it would have been doing fine because the Raptors, they were just clamped up regardless. And with two minutes to go, the Thunder were up six points. And the only guy for the Raptors who was hitting was Gary Trent Jr. So they were kind of force-feeding him the ball. He had like a step-back mid-range three. Didn't go in for them. Oklahoma City on the other end, they gave it to Moses Brown. He got free throws, hit them both. And it was pretty much over from that point. So the Thunder, by the end of the game, they won by 10 points. 
113 to 103 was the final score there. So with that win, the Thunder are now 20 and 27. It didn't change anything in the standings because the Pelicans and the Kings have been doing pretty well. So I think there's still like a one and a half game cushion between 12 and 13. So the loss or the win here, it didn't matter for right now. In the long run, this could have meant something because how the Raptors are doing. They're doing really, really bad, if you guys don't already know. But they're still stuck in 13th. Really nothing going on. You know, if they're trying to get to 14th in the West, that's kind of a pipe dream right now because the Houston Rockets are 14th. And are they really going to be winning any games? I don't think so. They have been given wins damn near. I mean, they were up against the Brooklyn Nets, I think, by 20 points yesterday. And you know what happened? They let the Brooklyn Nets come back and win. And that's exactly what happened in their game right before that you know they had a gigantic lead and they just coughed it up what was it like a 21-0 run for the Timberwolves or something 22 or 21 point run like they are not going to be losing any games anytime soon so we're not going to be able to catch up to them the only guys that we could catch up to are probably in the Eastern Conference like number five is where you cap at and people we need to jump to get there include the Toronto Raptors they have been really bad I mean, this was their ninth loss in the last 10 games. They are on a four-game losing streak right now and kind of pinning how that's happening. As someone who doesn't watch the Raptors that much, I couldn't tell you. I mean, their roster on paper looks so solid. And when you look at the roster we assembled for this game, it seemed like a no-brainer. Toronto would have walked out of there with a W. But it never seems to work out that way. And I think it's a lot of that credit goes to Mark Dagnall. Like, he deserves to be... I don't know about the coach of the year. I think if we're being fair, probably he should be in that conversation. I think it typically just goes to whoever's coaching like the first or second best team in the league. But I mean, he's been very good and it shows, you know, bringing all these guys who didn't even start probably until this month ended up beating a team that is like two years removed from a championship. Obviously, a lot of the key pieces weren't playing for them, but they still have some pretty big guys that suited up, and they were able to win by double digits. So, I don't know. I think I think it's really just Dagnall doing an amazing job with these guys, but also Toronto, they're just kind of shriveling up right now. So, they're losing a ton of games. Currently, they are sitting at 18 and 30. So they are tied up with the Washington Wizards for the 6th and 7th best odds come draft day. I think they must have the tiebreaker over them right now. But um, I don't know, man. They are they are in that territory. They're definitely in that hunt. So there's serious implications that we're going to be in this game. I can't say I'm surprised that we won, you know, because of how well we've done with just all these different bits and pieces it seems like everybody's just kind of playing in harmony while Toronto is not but I don't know I think if you would have you know made me bet on a team I wouldn't have said by 10 I would have said the Thunder probably might have been able to edge them but like four or five points not not 10 points especially after they were already down 14 points like five six minutes into this game so pretty wild to see that from them you know they're gonna head on to play the Phoenix Suns uh, tomorrow, I guess as I'm recording this, it's going to be a late game because it's over there. We're starting our road stand. It's like a 9 p.m. tip-off time. So if you guys are into that, I mean, I guess it's good timing maybe for some of you. 
because it will end super late. But yeah, they start out the road stand against the Phoenix Suns. Maybe that's a game where they're going to drop. You can never put anything past them, though. So I'm not going to say 100% they're losing that game. Anyways, that's what they're currently going to be facing. But they have a lot of things to kind of be discussing about and a lot of things to be happy about coming out of their homestand. And I think it starts with some of these guys that we didn't even really have a good gauge on to start our homestand. I think Shvi comes to mind first. He led the team on um, on Wednesday when it came to points. He had 22, and he shot 9 of 14 from the field. He is so much more athletic than advertised. I saw something like he didn't even have a dunk in Detroit, and now he's coming over here. He has more dunks than Hamadou Diallo does right now since he's gotten to the Pistons. I think he had an injury that he's still recovering from his uh, groin injury or whatever. So maybe that might have an impact. But if you would have bet that, I would have said hell no. I, I wouldn't even have thought Shvi would have two of these, two dunks, you know, by the end of uh, the season. But I think he had four in the last game. I know he had a couple against Toronto. He's just been all over the place. And he's definitely not just a set shooter kind of guy. So I think he's kind of earned his stripes you know, if we hit the free agency period, I think he's someone that you want to try to bring back. We don't know what the market would be for a guy like him because he's only 23 years old and he fits perfectly for what contenders want. I mean, he is a shooter. He is a bench guy who will get you 15 points, probably, you know, five out of 10 times. And when it's not 15, he's still in the hunt for double digits. So he's a perfect glue guy. So he has value. And with us having his rights, it's going to mean a lot. So I think he's kind of just proven that he's legitimate and, you know, there is a real reason to want to bring him back long term for what we're going to be doing. So he was just killing him the entire night. Moses Brown again. This was a quiet night for him, it seemed like, but he still had a double-double and it wasn't just a normal like 10-10 stat line. He had 20 points on the game and this was the guy who honestly I thought would have been the best player on the floor and I think in a way he probably was because of how the Thunder won this game it was because the rebound advantage they had and it was it was off the charts I mean they had 64 rebounds the Raptors had 35 so what is that like a 29 rebound advantage that's their largest of the season so I think you could credit it mainly to Moses Brown if you wanted to but um I mean when you get a guy like him, he, people are saying he's seven foot one now. Like the PA announcer said it. I know. I think Michael Cage might have brought it up. I could have sworn he was seven foot two. Like I'm pretty sure he's actually seven foot two. I heard that. I think in the bubble, like in or in the Orlando bubble. So it's one of those Taco Fall situations where they lower it down for whatever reason. I still think he's seven foot two. I think if he, you're gonna rule him as seven foot two, he's like seven one and three quarters minimum. But yeah, I mean he is he's really big, and his arms like his wingspan seven foot four is is crazy. So whenever you put him against a guy like Aaron Baines, is only six foot ten. You know he's a big guy, but he's not athletic at all. Like he has no chance. Whenever Moses Brown's trying to drive in on him. And even behind him, you got guys like Siakam, who's also, I think, six foot nine, six foot ten. And Utah Watanbe, he's also six ten, but he didn't even play really against Moses Brown, and he's not a center, he's like a small forward. So there was no real competition to match him height wise. And in previous games, like against the Kristaps Przingis led 
Dallas Mavericks or whatever, that's where Moses Brown has looked not as great. Like, he's met his match there. When you put him against someone who's not seven feet tall, he will destroy. Unless you can jump out the gym, Moses Brown is set to have a 10-point, 15-rebound game. And if he gets 15 rebounds, it's probably going to be also 20 points. That's just how he is because instinctively, and he deservingly so, he should be doing this, if he gets an offensive rebound, he's going right back up with it. He doesn't even really look to pass out of it that much. Like, 80% of the time, he's just hoisting it back up. And once he misses once and grabs it again, it's pretty much a 99.9% chance he's going up. Like, if he misses the first try, he's going to keep going up until he makes it. Because that's the highest percentage shot in the entire game. Especially for a guy like him who is damn near looking over the rim most of the time. So that's what he was doing, just really asserting himself down low against someone like Aaron Baines. He can snag rebounds all he wants. Baines, as I talked about, got a tech because he just couldn't deal with Moses Brown's size that entire game, and that's what's made him so good. I think that seriously he could be starting for us next year, and it'd make complete sense as to why. I really want to see him with all the starting guys, typically, um, and see how he kind of works, but... I think it'd be kind of similar to what we have now, just setting screens, getting down low. You know, he's not going to shoot the basketball for you, like, outside of, like, five feet, but it doesn't really matter because of how great he is. So he's been setting screens and then getting, like, right at the block. He gets a dump-off pass. And what most centers will do, that you know, they'll just get back up in a normal stance. Like, he's going down to get the ball. Hits, like, maybe he's, like, groin the chest area. Just anywhere in that range. So I guess you could say like around the stomach. That's where he gets the ball. And he kind of hunches down whenever he grabs it. And he's right below the rim. And he just kind of stays there for a second. Like he might pump fake a little bit like he's going to go up. And he gets the defender almost 100% of the time. Like if they were out of position and Moses Brown gets the ball right on the rim. They just want to jump right at him so they go flying they they miss on him because brown's not going up with the ball yet he waits for them he does like one dribble to get right below the basket like middle middle section of the lane and then he just throws it down and he does that about 50 percent of the time when he gets that situation and i love it so much because i mean he he just plays so different compared to a typical center like if you were to give like an al horford or steven adams or whoever the hell you want it the center to be the basketball in a situation like he does where he gets a dump off pass there's no center in his in his view for the most part they're just gonna chuck it immediately up and it's smart like it'll go in because no one's near you but if someone starts swooping in you're screwed like that is gonna be the easiest block of all time and there's just no real room for someone to give a chase down block to Moses Brown because all of his dunks are really just standing dunks, like, right under the rim. He waits till the paint clears out. It's just him, like, one-on-one. So the only person to block would be the guy right in front of him. And if you give Aaron Baines on him, is he really going to block you? Absolutely not. So he doesn't really get blocked. And that's the first part. And then number two, he's so good at getting fouled. So he'll get the ball because he's fighting. He's got a crazy hops. So he'll get the rebound offensively, and he kind of gets back down low, and then he kind of just does a rip-through move damn near to try to put it back up his layup. Like, he'll start with both hands, kind of gather it, and then he's not going to, you know, he's not going to do like a post move or whatever, like post hook, like 
just snag it with one arm and then try to fling it back up. He's going up with two hands until the very last second. And what that is doing is defenders, I mean, they see the ball and it's kind of a, a loose ball, you know, at first instinct. They're going to try to swipe at that. And they're hitting Moses Brown every single time. And then he just goes flying up with the basketball and he's getting a line. So in this game, he had nine free throws and he made eight of them. And he struggled in past games trying to make free throws. He didn't have an issue. If he becomes like a 70% free throw shooter in his career, that's an ultimate win for him because he's going to be getting to the free throw line more than probably any center we've seen come through here because of how athletic he is. You got guys like Steven Adams who, hell yeah, they could probably get to the line all he wanted if he went in the post all the time, but he was so passive, he never wanted to get down and dirty under the basket. He wanted to, you know, wait, you know, try to hand the ball off and set more screens. He was very good at that, by the way, but he never got aggressive. And when he did, he was good, but he never fully got up to that extra gear. Moses Brown gives you that extra gear every single game. And what do you see? You see him get almost 10 free throws in a game. And he's probably gotten 10 free throws and won these past games. I have not checked. You know what he did in the bubble? The exact same thing. I know for a fact through the first two weeks of the season, the G League season, I think he was leading the centers in terms of free throw shooting, maybe the entire league, because I know whenever he had that big accolade of player of the week, I was all in the numbers on this guy, and that was about the peak of his Orlando stint, he wasn't just the best player at the center position, he was the best player in the league, and I truly believe that, whenever he got triple teamed, his numbers kind of sunk down a bit, but he was playing just like he is right now, and the difference between Orlando and the NBA, it doesn't lie in how Moses Brown is playing. He's playing the exact same way. It's his teammates. And I think with the blue, his teammates were great. Like, I actually think that team was so stacked. But you could get away with leaving players open. Just look at the people that surrounded him in the starting lineup in that game. Teo Maladon, Svima Kailuk, Kenrich Williams, and Isaiah Roby. Are you going to leave them open for free three-pointers? Hell no, you're not. You can't leave them open. And then even when you look down the line, you got guys like Darius Miller and Justin Jackson. Justin Jackson hit two threes in that game. Darius Miller hit three. There's so many shooters. And even when you look at other guys like SGA, Dort, Baisley's having a down year, but he had times where he couldn't miss from outside. It's, it's dangerous, man. So when you put him in a situation where he can genuinely ISO the whole time, and if you double, he's kicking it out to a wide-open shooter, you can literally just use him alone as your game plan, and it's going to keep you in the game for the full 48 minutes. That's how dominant he has become for the team. And like I'm saying, it's not because Moses Brown has changed. He has been this way since day one in Orlando. It's figuring out his teammates Pretty much everybody on this team can shoot from three outside of like him and Tony Bradley, but they're centers. So they're so versatile in that fashion. And that's why I think Moses Brown has done so well, because if he was triple team this whole time, it wouldn't have gone down like this. And I know for a fact, teams are going to try to double him and triple team him down the line. He kind of gets all coughed up when you kind of corner him baseline, but we haven't seen it that much. And until we see that, he's going to keep dropping 20 points and 10 rebounds. And once he figures out how to uh, like avoid those situations, the league is going to be broken. 
So just get used to it. I'm so just overwhelmed with how Moses Brown has been playing with this squad. But, you know, he's been the guy who's been the limelight. I think Shvi has been too. But something that might go under the radar is just how ball handling was distributed in this game. I said it in yesterday's episode. They didn't really have a second point guard. We didn't have a second secondary ball handler. And this was an issue you would have never thought we could have had, you know, at the start of the season. We had SGA, we had George Hill, Teo, Ty Jerome wasn't playing, but, you know, he was still listed as a point guard back then. We only had Teo Maladon for this game. And you might say we've seen point forwards and players like Darius Baisley and Pokachevsky. They were both gone, so you didn't have the ordinary point forwards. They had to kind of claw at anything they could for someone who could take the ball up. And what you saw was like five different people sharing it the whole game. So Teo, he was the main guy. I mean, he played 32 minutes at the point guard spot. He had the most assists on the whole entire team. I think he had like six. Yeah, he had six assists. But there were still other people taking the ball up. Josh Hall off the bench. He played 21 minutes. He was taking the ball up a decent amount. Justin Jackson got to play 24 minutes. He was taking the basketball up. You saw Shvi do it at times. Isaiah Roby was doing it. He had three assists to go along with 10 rebounds and 17 points. He was dangerous. But just so many different people going up. And I'm not going to say this was perfect because they had 18 turnovers on this game. But... I think it was a pretty clean performance when it comes down to it. I mean, they almost had the same amount of assists as the Toronto Raptors. The Thunder had 19 in the game. The Raptors only had 21, so it was very close. And I just think switching it up really helped them. And really it helped them spaced out the floor too because they made 14 threes on the game. But just lovely from everybody. Honestly, I could probably talk about Isaiah Roby if I wanted to for 10 minutes. I might hold that off for like a player spotlight episode. Because he has been improving so much, you know, over these past couple months. But that's just kind of my thoughts on this game. And there was one other thing from this game that I think deserves a little bit of an attention. And that's going to start out the new segment I'm kind of just experimenting with right now. And it's the buy or bluff segment. So like I said, kind of just bringing up a topic from a game or from the league or from the team. And thinking if I'm buying it or if I think it's just kind of a rumor or just a wash. And it comes through Vic Kredge, actually. We got him with our second round pick. Actually, we traded for it with the Wizards. But we kind of stashed him. Six foot eight point guard. Played minimally like overseas these past two years. He think he tore his ACL. So he's out for the season. He... Had that from the jumps. That's why we have not carried him over. He's been in the States. He was in Oklahoma City a couple months ago, actually. And he was training. He was on the OKC Blue roster. I never actually saw any pictures of him with the team. But he was listed on that 15-man roster. And it looks like he's been training. So he's kind of getting back into shape. And we actually apparently saw him at the Thunder game yesterday, and this comes from Brandon Rabar. He's a pretty big guy in the Thunder media, but I guess there's like some sort of checkbook whenever you go into these games as a media person. Sign in, you go to your seat, and that's that. Apparently, Vit was the name right before his, and we know he's in Oklahoma City. What we 
don't know is if he's participating with the team right now. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not 100% like certain on how the NBA rules work, but I would just assume you can't bring a guy that you have rights to in your typical practices. Like he's not part of your team. I feel like you need to put him on the payroll for him to be involved. So maybe he's just trading privately or something. And maybe because he was on that blue roster, he has access to the training facilities. But right now, he's not an active member of the Thunder organization. And that could change because of that two-way spot opening because of Moses Brown. And in the last episode, I talked about two big names that I thought would be competing for the final two-way roster spot. And that was in Omer Yurtseven, and it was also in... Dante Hall. Now that is a 22-year-old in Yurt 7. I think I actually called him 23 in the podcast, so my bad. 22-year-old and 23-year-old centers who could come in and help us out right away on a two-way deal. But something that I said was, you know, with the Thunder kind of having things figured out, like I feel like the nine-man rotation right now, even with everybody out like Pokachevsky and Jerome, worked out well. Like all the guys who are playing for us, deserve to be in the NBA I would say yeah I I think I would genuinely say that like I think on other rosters pretty much all of them would see some sort of time and I think they most of them would be due for new contracts after there's expires so we're pretty stacked in terms of depth here and I think it's viable to say or legitimate to say like we don't necessarily need another two-way player to come in for our team right now even though we have that space but no one's Sam Presti like he wants to find those gems and I don't know if I said it in my last episode but I know I put it on my blog post because I did do a blog post on Kyle Singler for MVP.com terrible domain name but I really just outlined what I had in this podcast but I added some more had more research that's probably if you want to know more about the two-way situation highly suggest you check that out but in there I was actually referring to like some of the history we saw in the franchise, and we saw Burton go, we saw Lou Dort go, they got their contracts upgraded, and Sam Presti almost immediately got their spots replaced. Two years ago, after Deontay Burton left, Jawan Evans, Oklahoma State alum, he got that job, and then last year, when Lou Dort got moved up and got his contract upgraded, we immediately got Devin Hall who I think we might have had on a two-way to begin the year or something, but he he was with us. We got him back on a two-way contract within the same exact week. So Sam Presti does not shy away from trying to make sure everybody can play or just trying to discover new people. He's obsessed with player development, and I think the whole entire franchise is, to be quite honest with you. So it's a bit different now because... In seasons prior, we were just stacked with veterans. Now everybody's young. And it's like, why would you do that? You're just making everybody compete. But there's a reason you'd want a guy like Yurt7 or Dante Hall to develop. But you could bring in Vit right now. He's not going to clog up your minutes. But he's also a six foot eight point guard you can begin to develop right now. And he's not just a, like a Thomas Sadoransky almost. Because he's tall. But... He has a lot of skills to him. Like, he is pretty damn athletic. Even at a small forward position, I'd say he's on par with the athletes to see, to you see there. Like, you put him at point guard, it's pretty crazy. 
And from three, not much of a track record, but he does have some pretty good highlight tapes from there. And defensively, he's really good too. So there's a lot of potential for him. Maybe you just want to bring him in right now. You get him, really just work on him. He's going to be in the rhythm of the practices. And whenever next year comes around, I don't know if he's going to be on the 15-man roster or what. You'd assume since he's in Oklahoma City, he has a roster spot guaranteed, whether it's a two-way contract or a NBA standard contract. But he's going to be with this organization. So my buy or bluff is about whether or not him being there kind of signals that he got that job. Honestly, I want to say bluff, but I think it could backfire on me because putting myself in the same headspace as Presti, I'm thinking maybe we should just try to get somebody now and see if we can discover somebody else. But also, like, you're pretty much shirt up everywhere. I think center, like I've talked about, is the opening. I think if they're going to get a two-way guy, it's got to be someone at center. Like, it's got to be Yurt Seven or Hall, man. I'm just telling you. But if they really are bringing him in and he's just, you know, he's checking everything out, I think that maybe he could be set to become a member. And with Josh Hall, I think he will get his contract upgraded by the end of the season. So it's a bit of a cop-out answer. But I'm going to say if... Hall gets upgraded and you have two available spaces, Vid is going to be guaranteed one of those. When you're looking at just one remaining spot right now, I want to say there's probably a greater than 50% chance he's getting that job. But if they're still looking to evaluate people, I don't think he's necessarily in that conversation because he's not going to contribute until next year. I still really love the two guys in Hall and Yurt7. I think they can carve out pretty good NBA careers. I think Hall works amazing with our second unit just because of how big of a high flyer he is. Yurt 7 played with Moses Brown, looked like him, looked better than him at times. So they both have really good arguments. I think the Thunder really need to take a hard look at them. But if they want to just not fill out any more minutes, they just want to look on to next year, I think Vit is going to be your clear-cut option. But we just have to wait and see what happens with them. I ended up posting my little blog post to Reddit, and I got a reply back asking about Cabin Gelly. He played for the Clippers, former first-round pick, got traded to the Kings, and then he just got he got waived. So he is going to be available for a two-way contract. I don't necessarily know if I'd want him for sure because he's, he's already 23, I think. He's almost at 24. Like, he's pretty close to his birthday so he's like a happy medium kind of between yurt seven and hall like hall is athletic very very athletic cabin gelly i mean he's got hops but it's not really an elite level and i think with yurt seven like he can stretch the floor out pretty decent post game and he's big cabin gelly he's a big guy decent shooter and post game it's solid if you were to ask me who i'd want out of those three, I'd probably not go with Cabin Gelly, to be honest, just because I don't know if he'd really fit with our team. He's six foot nine, and he's not, you know, he's not jumping out the gym like other players. I don't know about the defensive versatility either. Like, he's solid at his position, but you move him down to the four, yeah, it's a little bit tough there. So, I probably would say no, but I do think he's a solid guy. Like, I think he'd be good with other teams. I don't know if the Thunder would be the greatest destination for him. With Yurt7 and Hall, I think they make complete sense. And I, If they brought him in, one of those guys in right now, 
I'd be jumping for joy, and I'd be making a whole episode. I'd make an emergency podcast about that because I do really like both of them. But if you guys have any other kind of two-way candidates you want to bring my way or any more like suggestions or things I could use for like this buyer bluff thing, make sure to comment. Um, you guys, I guess there's no commenting on here, but just click my name in the video description, takes in my Twitter, tweet me, DM me if that's open. I don't know if it is, but you can hit me up. I'll make sure to take whatever you say. And, uh, if I think it's good for the, for the next podcast, I'll definitely put you in there, give you credit. And yeah, I, I'd really love to hear what you guys would have to say. But other than that though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.